Long time no see. Just want to make sure we don't forget this before we get going. I'll even start off with a little bit of that right now. So invigorating. Don't you love the smell of this stuff? No, not at all. It's almost like smelling salts. I'm assuming smelling salts are much stronger than that. Well, for our introduction this morning, I am just simply going to remind you of the focal passage that I preached on two weeks ago and is in fact about the event that brought on the sermon I'm about to preach on. Yes, I'm going to preach a sermon on a sermon. In fact, there's a lot of sermons in the book of Acts. Peter has a number of them. Paul has a number of them. There's a couple others in there. But uh, this was a, a pretty a pretty powerful thing. I still, even as many times as I've read it, this moves me. So I'm just going to read it to you, so you got to listen. Uh, you don't have to look at me, but it's not going to be on the screen. So, here we go. Healing the beggar who was unable to walk. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been unable to walk from birth was being carried, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order for him to beg for charitable gifts from those entering the temple grounds. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple grounds, he began asking to receive a charitable gift. But Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, Look at us! And he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not have silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk! And grasping him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And leaping up, leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Note that. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Verse 10. And they recognized him as being the very one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg for charitable gifts. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This man was over 40 years of age. He had been doing this every day. The Greek in the, uh, describes his ailment as, such as, I believe it was physically obvious that his ankles and feet were malformed. Very, very obvious. So they knew he was the real deal. He wasn't somebody faking it that he had some sort of an issue and just begging because he didn't want to work. They knew that he was truly 
we don't like to use this word today, but many commentators, the scripture says the same thing, uses the word cripple. Okay? So that's the event that leads up to today. So now I want you to, uh, before we get into the focal passage, I want you to reread with me our Bible slide for this month. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, filtered seven times. We have this again as a reminder that what we are reading is the actual words of God. You understand? These aren't words of men. These are words from God, written down by men, inspired The words are inspired by God. That's this reminder for you. Now let's get into this passage. Focal point, Jesus. I talked previously in previous message about the purpose of miracles, sign miracles, and so forth. They were always, nearly always, for the purpose of presenting a prophet accrediting a prophet or an apostle, someone sent by God with a message. Okay? Even angels did it. So, and what are angels but messengers of God? Prophets are messengers of God. Apostles, messengers of God. Nicodemus came to Jesus early on, you remember, and said, we know, he was one of the Pharisees, the Pharisee of teacher of Israel was described as, and said, we know you must be sent from God, for no one can do these signs unless he is sent from God, unless God is with him. This is a sign. This is an apostolic gift. This has been passed on. Jesus himself displayed these miracles, more so than anyone else, obviously, and for obvious reasons. But it was sort of a witness a powerful one at that, that he was sent from God. Okay, now that we've established that point, let's, I'm going to, I want to read through this entire passage, and then if I may ask Don to reset it back to the first verse of the passage when we get done. Let us read it together. You don't have to read it out loud if you don't want. You can just follow along. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to him at the portico named Solomon's, completely astonished. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why are you staring at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you handed over and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. That was a cross-reference. Moving on. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you to be put to death, the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. 
And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect help in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers also did. But the things which God previously announced by the mouths of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your countrymen. To him you shall listen regarding everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. That should be some scary words for you. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward have also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God ordained with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Final verse, God raised up his servant for you first and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. (coughs) Pardon me. While Don resets that, I'll get my sermon notes. So, while he was clinging to Peter... All the people ran together to them at the portico named Solomon's, completely astonished. Now Solomon's colonnade was a covered patio that ran the entire length of the eastern portion of the outer court of the temple precincts, um, and along and just inside the eastern wall of the temple. This was more than 300 feet long. It is a huge place. It was a favorite place for Jesus to preach when he was here on his earthly ministry. In fact, I, from memory, I can't recall exactly, but I think uh, in John chapter 10, in fact, yes, it's here in my notes. John chapter 10, Jesus uh, preached when he said, I am the bread of life, after he had been out and he had come across and come into, back into Jerusalem he preached on his being the bread of life. And again, in chapter 5, we will see the apostles back here in in, uh, Acts preaching from this place. It was a favorite place. So it would hold great, huge crowds. So that's just to give you a little bit of the place about all of this. Verse 12, But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel... Why does he say that? 
He's addressing who? The men of Israel. Of course, it's not just exclusively to the men of Israel, but by that sort of proclamation, he is speaking essentially a national sermon. You understand? This isn't just personal, though it is always personal. Whenever we are preaching the gospel, it, is al- it always has personal application. But in this particular case, it also has the overarching implication by this statement, men of Israel, he is addressing the nation of Israel. So, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why are you staring at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made him walk? Well, what's he speaking of? The name of Jesus, right? The name of Jesus. By the power and authority of Jesus. When we say in the name of Jesus, we are talking about the power and authority of Jesus. There's nothing magical about the name Jesus. In fact, it was very common in those days, and as we, get, as we just read, you'll see that, in fact, Peter gets very specific in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, okay? Because there were so many Jesus people around. And I'll get into a little bit more about the name Jesus. There are a lot of names, and we're going to be looking at the names of Jesus, the names of Christ in this passage. So, he said, why are you looking at us? It's not our own power. It's not our own piety that made this man walk. It's the power of the name the power of the name. <clears throat> the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. If you've been reading the Bible for any period of time, you've heard this phrase before, have you not? You've read it before. It is usually given at very important events, very austere events, if you will. So this name of uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It brought about, this was the covenant name of God, in other words. We know this as Yahweh. Many Jews will not even say that name. It is holy. So holy they will not speak it. So they will say the name. Oftentimes, Yahweh is, is translated in our English Bibles as Lord. Uh, There are other Hebrew names that are listed as Lord, but Yahweh is typically listed as all capitalized, L-O-R-D, all capitalized. So he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, (laughs) Peter knows his audience. These are devout Jews who have come to the temple to worship at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. He knows his audience. They know this as the covenant name of God. Do you understand? This is a serious name spoken at serious, austere events. So Peter is getting their attention. You're witnessing something. This is a pivotal moment in history. Pay attention. Okay? And then... He hits them hard. What does he say? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant. Just so you know, take a breath. Take a stretch if you have to. We're going to be parked on this verse for a couple of minutes. 
because there's so much in this one verse, there's no way I could cover it as it should be covered, perhaps, in, in, in this sermon. But we're going to spend enough time on it so you get the gist of it, if you understand. So, this is the Old Testament title of God, the, the, the covenant name of God. But in this, beyond that, we have, he, he, he says, the, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, servant for Jesus isn't a title given many times in the New Testament. I think maybe four times. But in the Old Testament, that servant, it is well known that it, he is speaking of the Messiah. It's a foreshadowing, a prophesying of the coming Messiah. Yahweh, the covenant name of God. You know, the place most commonly seen this servant figure from the Old Testament prophets is in the prophet Isaiah. There are what's called four servant songs in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 42, and in fact, I have that right here, Isaiah 42, 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's Isaiah, several hundred years ahead of the time of Christ. Who else could he be speaking of? Look at all of the capitalized my, 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 he. It can only be Christ. So I back up briefly. The one whom you handed over. We see this repeated, this word you. The one whom you handed over and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Pilate actually had decided to release Jesus and declared it openly at least six times. But you see, in their ignorance, not seeing Jesus for who he truly was, they said they would rather have Barabbas. They'd rather have Barabbas. Did I go backwards? What am I doing here? 13. Something is happening here. Well, I'm trying to get to verse 14. There we go. Okay, you got it, Don. Thank you. Pardon my uh, brain cramp, folks. That, yeah, that's, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <clears throat> but you disowned the holy and righteous one. The holy and righteous one. Another title. But let's stop on Jesus for a minute. You remember what the name Jesus means? Some of you maybe you do. It is the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. Remember the angel said you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. Well, <clears throat> but they disowned the holy and righteous one. 
You know, the Holy One is a messianic title. In fact, in Psalm 16.10, Peter quoted it in his previous sermon, and, as, and I preached uh, about that before. He said, For you abandoned my soul to Sheol. This was David writing one of the messianic Psalms. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And we have already believed, Peter, Peter actually said to Jesus in John 6.69, and we have already believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Remember, Jesus was asking him. <coughs> that you are the Holy One of God. Okay? You see what I'm stacking up here for you? And I'm going to try to move it along a little more quickly. Peter is laying out that this is the Old Testament prophesied Messiah that they rejected. And he's not pulling his punches on him, is he? <clears throat> but you disowned the holy and righteous one. Righteous mean, means innocent one. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life. Stop and think about that. They put to death this word, Prince, the Prince of Life, this title, indicates the author of. <clears throat> the Greek word means the author of, the author of life, author originator. In John 1, verses 1 through 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Here's the thing I want you to pay attention to pertaining to the author of life. Verse 3 says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. We are talking about the Creator when we are talking about Jesus. Amen? <clears throat> In him was life, verse 4. And the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. And we move to verse 10. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. We are talking about the author of life, the originator, the original originator. <laughs> okay? And yet the world did not know him. The sermon focuses on God's servant, Jesus, whom Israel disowned and killed, but God raised from the dead. Are you with me? It is through his name and the faith that comes through him that the healing of the crippled beggar occurred. <coughs> Pardon my gurgling. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man. What's Peter doing? He's not taking the credit. You know, if you're walking, you may not be out there performing miracles like the apostles. I suspect most of you have yet to perform miracles. If you have, we need to talk. But people, if you're living for Jesus... Listen to me. Look at me. 
If you're living for Jesus, people notice, don't they? People notice. It does not go unnoticed. And it presents sometimes an opportunity to speak on behalf of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Does it not? Sometimes. Now there are some people that will avoid us. They'll avoid that conversation like a plague, and I get that. I know that. I've seen it happen. I've had my plenty of experiences that way myself. And I'm sure if you've been walking around witnessing for Jesus, you've experienced it as well. There are some people until you spoke up and witnessed for Jesus and didn't know that you represented him, they just talked to you like they would talk to anybody else. As soon as you took an opportunity to bear witness of Jesus, some of those people, they will avoid you and that subject like the plague after that. Okay? Don't worry about that. You just do what God's called you to do. Okay? When God is calling someone to Jesus, and that's what Scripture said He does, the Father draws people to Christ. When He is doing that, and you are being faithful in your witness, I'm not talking about being obnoxious or being a jerk about it. That doesn't work, obviously. I'm talking about seeing your opportunities, expressing Jesus as you, with your personality, would do. If that person is being drawn to Christ, they will respond. And in that respect, you cannot fail. If someone is going to reject Christ, it, uh, it doesn't matter what you say or how smoothly you say it. The eloquence of your words is not what gets people to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's Christ drawing them to him. You don't have to be slick and smooth. You just have to be faithful. You don't have to have four years of Bible college and two years of seminary. You don't need that. You just need Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit in you. You need to be walking the walk talking the talk. Okay, I move on. <clears throat> so Peter is not taking the credit, is he? He's saying, this is Jesus. And now, brothers, I know that you act in, in ignorance, just as your rulers also did. See how he's turning it, okay? And stop and think about this. They acted in ignorance and in ignorance and denied Jesus. Did they not? What did Peter do on the night of Jesus' trial? Peter denied Jesus. Why did he deny Jesus? Because he feared for his life from these very same people. He's not doing that anymore, is he? Why do you think that is? Let me ask you, is there any less reason for Peter to fear these people because these people have changed? No. The only thing that's changed is the indwelling Holy Spirit in Peter. 
But beyond and before that, before the indwelling Holy Spirit in Peter and the filling of the Holy of the Spirit by uh, of Peter by the Holy Spirit, Peter had seen the risen Jesus. He had seen the risen Christ. You know, when you see a dead man get up and walk and do all kinds of marvelous things. If that doesn't change your mind, nothing ever will. And in fact, that was the case. There are people, Jesus himself said in one particular parable he told, that they won't even believe after they see a dead man rise from the dead. And that was true. Okay? So, but Peter turns and he says, just as your rulers also did, you acted in ignorance. But the things which God previously announced by the mouths of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. So, how many prophets spoke of this? We'll get on to that in just a minute. But they were ignorant of the fact that Jesus was God incarnate. They expected the Messiah to come. But what they were expecting wasn't somebody in lowly grace, but rather as a mighty military deliverer. Have you ever had expectations of someone and been disappointed? Maybe I shouldn't be the one asking that question. They expected the Messiah to come as this powerful military political leader. They looked upon Jesus as an imposter because he didn't fulfill their mistaken expectations. Their expectations of their Messiah was to come and set them free from the shackles of Rome. What they didn't understand was that their own, they had largely ignored their own prophets telling that Jesus would come and suffer. They had uh, had him killed because they thought he was an imposter. They probably thought they were doing God a service. They probably thought they were doing God a favor by killing this imposter. Thus the Savior himself said at the time of the crucifixion, Jesus himself said, Luke 23, verse 24, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Paul later wrote, Had they, the princes of this age, known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2.8 Verse 18, But the things which God previously announced by the mouths of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Zechariah 12.10 puts it this way, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of pleading, so that they will look at me whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him like one mourning for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Without excusing their sin, Peter shows that God overruled it to fulfill his own purposes. The prophets of the Old Testament had predicted that the Messiah would suffer. The Jewish people were the ones who inflicted the suffering on him. But now he offered himself to them as Lord and Savior, though, excuse me, through him they could receive forgiveness of their sins. The very people that Peter feared and who played a major role in killing Jesus are now being offered forgiveness for that sin. 
Why? Because it was the plan all along. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had this plan in motion all along that Jesus would die to set us free, not from Roman oppressors, not from oppressing governments, but from the oppression of our own sin. From the oppression, because of our own sin, of being under the dominion of Satan who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy us. Do not misunderstand me when I say this. Let me make it absolutely crystal clear. When we sin, we are earning the wages of death. You understand that? The wages of sin is death. God's righteous wrath is going to be poured out upon the earth as we are studying about in the book of Revelation on Tuesday nights. Because God cannot be a righteous, just God if he doesn't punish sin. He must punish sin. How could he be righteous and just if he didn't? But, see, he poured out that wrath on Christ for those who will accept that gift. Do you know somebody who still needs to accept that gift? I suspect that you do. All you got to do is share Jesus with them. There's no guarantee that they will come to Jesus. But if they are being drawn to Jesus by the Father, you cannot cannot fail. You cannot fail. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. it must be remembered that this message is addressed to the men of Israel, like I mentioned before. It emphasizes the national repentance which must precede the national restoration and blessing that it's speaking of in this passage. The times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord refer to the blessings of Christ's future kingdom on earth, as mentioned in the next couple of verses and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets from ancient times. Following Israel's repentance, God will send the Messiah, Jesus. As mentioned previously, this refers to the second advent of Christ, to set up his thousand-year reign on the earth, about which we are studying in the book of Revelation. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your countrymen. To him, capital H, you shall listen regarding everything he says to you. Now he's not saying that he'll be just like Moses. He'll be in a manner like Moses, but Moses and Jesus are not equals. You understand? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God. He always existed as God. Even before he became human Jesus, he was the second person of the Trinity. Moses, a created being, a man, raised up, wrote the first five books of the the Bible, the Pentateuch. But you see, When he is speaking as 
speaking of him as a prophet, because Jesus was a prophet. It is a looking forward to Christ's glorious reign. Peter quotes in this quote here, Deuteronomy 18, 15, 18, and 19. The passage pictures the Lord Jesus as God's prophet in Israel's golden age, announcing God's will and law. When Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, he did not mean likeness to a character or ability, but likeness in the sense that both were raised up by God. He will raise him as he raised me up, in other words. Verse 23, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet, listen folks, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Utterly destroyed. Utterly destroyed. Those who refuse to hear and obey Jesus will be utterly destroyed. Those who reject him as Lord, Master, and Savior will suffer eternal judgment, being separated from God's people forever and ever and ever. That's how serious this is. Verse 24, and likewise all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward have also announced these days. We're getting close to the end, folks. Take a deep breath. I know this is heavy stuff, but this is the gospel message and a warning, a deadly deadly, eternally deadly warning. But you know, those of us who know Christ, we have hope. We know that we have life eternal. Can we say amen to that? Can we leap like this man who has been leaping and praising God, who's been able to walk for the first time in his entire life because Jesus has saved us? To further emphasize the times of restoration were well predicted, Peter adds that all the prophets from Samuel and his successors spoke of the days in which he is speaking. Verse 25, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God ordained with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Peter now reminds his Jewish hearers that the promise of these times of blessing was made to them as sons of the prophets and descendants of Abraham. After all, God had made a covenant with Abraham to bless all the families of the earth in his seed. All the promises of millennial blessing center in the seed, i.e. Christ. They should therefore accept the Lord Jesus as Messiah. This is a gospel message given specifically to the Jewish nation to the Jewish people. And like I said before, while this is, has a national application here, it is the gospel message that applies to us as well, to us personally. Final verse, God raised up his servant for you first. Remember Jesus said to the Jew first? Didn't he? They were to present the gospel to the Jews first. That's what you see happening. Giving Israel every last chance. 
and sent him to bless you by turning away, turning every one of you from your wicked ways. All right, let me close this up. The following is from Max Anders from the Holman's New Testament Commentary. And then we will close. He says, the gospel requires a response. In both Acts 2 and 3, Peter intended his listeners to do something about what, what, what he said. It was, as we might say, the hearer's choice. In September of 1900, a killer hurricane bore down on Galveston Island. One old bridge connected the island to the mainland, serving as the only evacuation route for thousands of people. Even without modern-day detection systems, the coming hurricane was spotted and ample warnings given. There were no visible signs to the people on the island, however. They couldn't actually see the hurricane nor its fury. So they chose to ignore the warnings they were given because they didn't see any physical signs. They didn't believe the warnings they were given. When that terrible storm struck, 6,000 people were killed and the city of Galveston destroyed. Today, a strong concrete seawall stands as a barrier against such a disaster, but also as a reminder of that day over a century ago Thousands of people heard a message of warning and chose not to respond. Folks, I know this is a heavy message. But in this message is a gospel message of hope. And do you know that you have within your power to share that message of warning to people so that they might not perish? 28 days until Resurrection Day. All I'm asking is you to invite your friends so they can hear the message again. On Easter Sunday, what I prefer to call Resurrection Sunday, I will be preaching on the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why of Easter. It will be the full gospel message in abbreviated form. Yeah, it really will be. Folks, I love you. God loves you. God loves people and is drawing them to Christ here in Durham and nearby where you live and work. And we have a mission the great commission. He said to go into all the world, into the whole, all the nations, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Please pray. I challenge you to pray that God would put people in your path to whom you can witness and that he gives you that boldness of the Holy Spirit to share. If you need any help on that front, let me know. I will do everything I can to enable you. Let's close in prayer. We'll take a short break, and then we will have the Lord's, Lord's Supper or communion service. So about five-minute break, and then we'll come back. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for this message, for the patience of those people listening, for the patience of those watching on Facebook Live. Father, I pray that you make this message effective. Glorify your name, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.